Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. What could go right in a world where we are so focused on what could go wrong? Part of the goal of these conversations and what could go right is not to ignore what could go wrong, but to put questions of risk in the context of the world that we're living in. We are talking today on what could go right with Linda Rottenberg. I've known Linda for 15 years, a little more than that, and she has, both before then and over that time, built one of the most incredible global networks called Endeavor, uh, which she co-founded right before the turn of the millennium and has since become perhaps the largest innovator of global entrepreneurship in the world. It's headquartered in New York City. It has 50 worldwide offices structured as a nonprofit, and they select, they mentor, they co-invest to sponsor entrepreneurship throughout the world. They've done about 1,300, I think the numbers are now 1,400 Endeavor entrepreneurs in country after country. They've screened over 50,000 candidates those companies have provided 650,000 jobs and generate more than $10 billion in annual revenue, stretching from Chile to Indonesia, and now from Nigeria to Kenya to Argentina, uh, Lebanon, throughout the Middle East. Linda is also the author of Crazy is a Compliment, The Power of Zigging When Everyone Else Zags. When you started thinking about Endeavor and the world of non-U.S. entrepreneurship, what did it look like then and what does it look like now? It's interesting how today the idea of entrepreneurs operating outside the United States, including in the emerging markets, seems so obvious. And yet 20 years ago when Endeavor was launching, uh, no one thought this was a good idea. In fact, no one believed there were entrepreneurs in these markets, uh, certainly not those who would grow and create scalable businesses. And I was known uh, throughout Latin America where Endeavor started. Today, we're in uh, 30 countries around the globe, in the U.S., in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, in the Middle East, and in Latin America. But when we were starting out in Latin America, I was known for almost a decade as La Chica Loca, the crazy girl. Why? Because I, 
I actually believed that there were these high growth, what Endeavor, my organization, calls high-impact entrepreneurs. And in fact, when we started out, uh, there wasn't even a word in Spanish or Portuguese or Arabic or Turkish, uh, et cetera, for, for entrepreneur. And one of my favorite moments in the Endeavor story came five years after we launched when the editor of the Brazilian Portuguese dictionary called up our team and said in part because of Endeavor's work, he was adding the words emprendedor and emprendedorismo for entrepreneur and entrepreneurship into the lexicon. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a good thing that we now have a word to describe a phenomenon. Was that phenomenon in place? I mean, there's a little bit of that sort of chicken and egg, or if you build it, they will come. I mean, how much do you think is a product of creating organizations that then help sponsor that? And how much of it was sort of an untapped thing that has just developed critical mass around the world? Well, a little bit of both. I mean, I co-founded Endeavor now 20 years ago because I believed there was talent. There were people with great ideas. And there, frankly, was capital in almost every market in the world. The problem was that that talent and that capital and that mentorship or know-how was they, was not accessing one another. And uh, when I was living in uh, emerging markets before starting Endeavor, you know, there were there would be about 10 families that controlled most of the resources, controlled most of the networks, and there was a perception that if you weren't part of those 10 families, that your your best bet was to get a government job. And I thought that was that's what I thought was crazy. You know, why if you ch- could, would would you only want to work for the government? And and yet somehow. Uh, people perceived that anything that started outside of those families was going to be worthy of microcredit because it was going to be a one-person organization. And I was out there saying, not microcredit, Microsoft, you know, Apple. Why can't those things start in places like Brazil or Egypt or Indonesia? And again, today that seems so obvious, but it really wasn't. It wasn't just unobvious to people in Silicon Valley who told me then that they were in the middle of Florence in the Renaissance and why would they look outside of their windows. But it really was not obvious either to the people living in a lot of these countries. And I think that um, Endeavor's insights were, number one, the power of mentorship and networks. Um, I believe that networks and, and mentorship really do, does make a difference in, in scaling um, people and companies. And, and, and relatedly, the role model effect. And what we've now found and our research team, Endeavor Insight, has really proven in city after city and ecosystem after ecosystem is that it takes three or four examples of ideas that become companies that really scale, that have an exit, usually either, either an, a buyout or in several cases we've seen an IPO, and then those individual entrepreneurs contributing back to the ecosystem, paying it forward as mentors themselves, as angel investors, becoming what, you know, the PayPal mafia, right, or what the Googlers are today. I mean, it's, it's that insight we had that it's entrepreneur-to-entrepreneur-built ecosystems that does make a difference. Because when we go into places without those three or four success stories, 
people who are starting companies tend to think smaller than they, they mother, otherwise might. So I think that's the difference, is that there's talent in all these places, but you have to show people that it's possible to think really, really big. You know, it's funny the self-consciousness that you referenced of some Silicon Valley people thinking, hey, you know, we're in the middle of the greatest story ever told here, so why would I look elsewhere? Of course, the one major difference is that is that nobody woke up in 1492 in Florence and looked out their window and went, wow, cool, the Renaissance. You know, that only became evident hundreds of years later. It was a pretty messy, difficult, complicated place at the time. I mean, I wonder to what degree... Um, you know, I've I've talked to people in some of these countries that like you, and there still is a perception in a lot of these countries that a few number of families really sort of control the capital and control the resources. I mean, is that changing as much in fact, or is it just are people challenging that? Both. I think that first of all, you don't only have to be an entrepreneur and start your own company, if there are other entrepreneurs, then you no longer have to look for that government job, right? So there's more employment options, I believe. Um, I think, just to give you one story, so in Turkey, one of the Endeavor entrepreneurs is a guy named Nevzat Adin, and he and his co-founder, Melio Demish, started a company called Yemek Sepeta. Yemek Sepeta is uh, an online food delivery company. And they were growing it very successfully. Uh, they had about 150 employees at the time. And uh, Nevzat and Melly decided they wanted to be either the first or one of the very few companies in all of Istanbul to offer stock options to their employees. And no one accepted the offer. Why? Because this was incredibly uncommon. Or not, I mean, they might have been even the first. And people thought it was a way to rip them off of their you know, annual cash bonuses. So no one agreed. Well, fast forward, uh, Yemek Sebit does incredibly well. Uh, Endeavor, actually, we co-invested in it alongside General Atlantic Partners. And Nevzat and Melly sell the company in 2014 or 2015 to Delivery Hero, for nearly $600 million. It's the largest internet exit in Turkey's history. Uh, the entrepreneurs do incredibly well. And what's one of the first things they do? The two co-founders take $25 million of their personal cash out, and they had been keeping a secret ledger of every individual employee's contributions and tenure, and they distributed cash bonuses as if people had accepted the stock options. CNN found out about this and labeled Nevzat the world's greatest boss, right? But that, that, that story captured hearts and minds of a lot of people. And I think that once you start now, what's happened is a lot of people that Nevzat and Millie have personally advised and, and mentored and, and invested in, they're now replicating this. And now, today, or you know, a couple of years later, people, I think, will start to accept stock options, right? So why does that matter? And people will start to think, okay, you know, it's possible to work for a company started by 20-something-year-olds in, in an industry I've never really heard of. Whereas even five or ten years ago, that if you didn't work for one of these top ten families or the government, your job was not safe. I think today people realize, and, I, you know, I, I wrote a book partly about this, is that the only thing that's risky is assuming there's no risk at all. So I think people's willingness to work for a startup or a scale-up in these countries um, has gotten itself much more common because they realize that the old timers are the ones in the risky business because they're being disrupted. So it's all about a change as much in perception as it is about reality changing. There is still a, a view, I think I was reading today, about uh, Slack, which 
if you're in the internet world, obviously you know is one of the fastest growing tractionable new companies and is all of whatever two and a half years old, 2014. And you know, and I'm not saying this at all negatively about them or what they're doing. It, that feels very much what a lot of Silicon Valley does. You know, creates messaging and connectivity, all of which may in fact ultimately enhance our productivity and change the way in which information flows, but is very different than in Indonesia or in Brazil. Do you see that at all changing in the U.S., or is the capital still kind of going to where it's gone to? Well, look, I was just in Atlanta, Endeavor. We started out in the emerging markets, and then after 2008, I got phone calls first from Greece saying, look, we need your help here. We need uh, hope. We need entrepreneurs to come back. And... um, in fact, when Andrew Ross Sorkin asked me, why on earth, if you were going to Europe, would you start in Greece? And I sort of said, well, when economies turn down, entrepreneurs turn up. And so I, I, once we got that call from Greece and then Spain and, and Italy, I, I, I knew it wasn't long before the U.S. called and we got you know, those phone calls from because we, we have to be pulled in by local business leaders. That's the way our model operates. And we got those calls first in Miami, then Detroit, then Louisville, and now actually Atlanta. And Atlanta is this incredible hub, and there's a lot happening at the startup level, but not at the scale-up level. And I think, again, while I have many friends and board members in Silicon Valley, um, there is this arrogance that we're going to take the great people and just move them here. And I think one of the reasons why Endeavor Atlanta is starting, where you could say, hey, in Atlanta, it doesn't seem like it would need your help. But the, the issue is there wasn't that much a local venture capital. And you had these successful business um, entrepreneurs saying, hey, other people are being asked to move, and we don't want them to move. So we're going to band together, and we're going to bring Endeavor, which has a proven model, and we're going to um, you know, maybe start local VC funds where there are already accelerators and uh, incubators, but let's take that scale-up model and make sure the best companies don't, don't leave. Um, and so, and in fact, when, you know, we started in Detroit, I had heard the story of Shinola, the watches. And you get there, and maybe it's no longer the case, but when I went a couple of years ago, the, the founder was nowhere to be seen. He was in Texas, right? And people were very upset that that was the Detroit story when most of the operations were in Texas at the time, right? So I think that there is a need, and I, I think that... Um, uh, someone like Steve Case with the rise of the rest, there are some people that are realizing that even in the United States, we can't just have capital going to New York, California, Boston, and L.A., and maybe, you know, that there have to be these other cities. But I think it's still fairly slow. And again, what we've seen is it really takes successful entrepreneurs reinvesting in their communities, going from founder to funder, and making sure that you can't just start a business, but you can actually scale that business. And that's hard when you need the talent. It's not just the capital. It takes a while. It's much easier to build a a SaaS business, software as a service business in Silicon Valley and think, okay, you know, do I steal from Salesforce? Do I steal from, or or a consumer internet? Okay, am I taking engineers from Facebook or Google? It is very hard whether you're operating you know, in South Africa or in South Detroit to say, where, where am I getting the talent from as I need to professionalize and scale my business? Hold up. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It is certainly true for millennials. There is a lot of conversation of purpose matters greatly, and that being part of an organization with purpose is at least as important as being part of an organization where there's an expected income path. You know, we don't know whether this is something that's easier to feel in your 20s and 30s, pre, whatever, pre-family, pre-kid expenses, college, and whether that will last, whether this is in fact a generational sea change or whether it's a phase. I mean, we'll know soon enough. I wonder from the global perspective, right, what, what's going on? Are there any countries in particular or parts of the world that you feel right now are sort of underappreciated and are particularly exciting and you think are – there's a critical mass that's going to lead to some uh, real positive change in those areas? Um, is it true in bits and pieces throughout the world? Just wonder, are you seeing anything that is maybe a little counterintuitive to what people think or just different? Yeah, I mean, I think that, first of all, um, Endeavor started in Argentina. When we were there, it was the lost generation. <laughs> there were almost no business leaders who had, you know, stayed after um, the military coup that that had occurred. And uh, today we have an entire new generation of, of entrepreneurs. It's hugely exciting. Two of our companies, uh, Globent, which is uh, a software and design company, went public on the New York Stock Exchange, and Mercado Libre, the eBay of Latin America, went public on the NASDAQ. And today, Mercado Libre is the highest valued company in the entire country of Argentina, more than the national oil company, more than the national banks. It's unbelievable. And the, and so many small businesses make their entire living, over 50,000 small businesses, through Mercado Libre's platform. So that's, that's a country that we've actually seen change. Um, in, in Latin America, also, I think a country like Brazil, which today we hear about the headlines of corruption scandal after corruption scandal in the private and public sectors, and yet we're seeing, um, you know, slowly emerging a new class of, of, of business leaders. Um, I'm quite excited about Indonesia. I think it's um, a place that is up and coming. It's a fascinating place. We heard a little bit about it because Barack Obama had spent time there, but it just it used to be one of the centers of the world back in the spice trade, and I think you're seeing a lot of exciting companies that are starting. I mentioned Turkey. I think uh, the Internet um, 
uh, entrepreneurs in Turkey are extraordinary in particular, um, but really beyond that as well. Um, I hope that they are able to survive the latest, you know, a clawback of powers um, that Erdogan has has taken over. And then Endeavor is just starting in, in Kenya and Nigeria. There's going to be explosive growth there. Um, and lastly, I, I've really been impressed with uh, some of the entrepreneurs we've uh, just met in, in Italy. And I think that Italy, again, is a place where uh, there's been a lot of corruption um, in the public sector in particular and um, private sector. It's been dominated mainly by fashion and food and wine and family-owned businesses. You're seeing an entirely new generation of businesses that are tech-enabled, and it's just starting out, but I'm, I'm very excited about that future as well. If you said to me, look, 10 years from now, you're going to be blown away by the changes in Indonesia, a country of 250 million people, the largest Muslim country in the world, huge youth population, a lot of work to do to connect the country economically and infrastructure, I would probably go, oh, I could totally see that. If you said to me 10 years from now, the next hub of entrepreneurship and innovation is going to be Milan and Italy, right? That would surprise me way more, which is an interesting thing. Like you you can see... Maybe Nigeria will be this place of, you know, internet banking like like Kenya, but Italy, really? Well, and that's the interesting thing. When we went, it's interesting because at first I thought, oh, my God, Endeavor can only work where we have a catalytic effect, and we've been in Latin America and the Middle East and now Southeast Asia, and, you know, Africa, that makes sense, but when really we're going to go to Europe. And exactly what you're saying, places like Spain, places like Italy, I mean, you actually have to almost overcome more psychologically to be a tall poppy and to actually do something that is, you know, attacking the status quo. What do entrepreneurs do but attack the status quo for a while? And yet, I, I really believe we're seeing some really, really exciting. It's just, in my view, at the beginning. Um, but I, I think watch this space. And once, and the answer is when you have just a few examples of, of self-movement, then, then, then it starts to, then you get that, um, that that flywheel effect, you do get the multiplier effect, but it, it does take a few people um, to say, hey, if he can do it or she can do it, I can too. And what about your thoughts on two areas of the world where you've been less involved just because the nature of their economies preclude it? But if you're thinking about areas of real change and innovation, you know, what do you make of maybe China being a source of that that's going to affect a lot of other companies around the world and a lot of other pathways? And, and India, certainly, which has not been, you know, both have been mostly focused on how do we deal with a billion and a half people? How do we make sure we have a functional society? How do we feed them? All these much more elemental, but clearly areas of higher education, some of the same instincts some, and many of the same problems. Um, yeah, and in fact, Endeavor is now in Japan, which is interesting. So that's, you know, a uh, window slightly closer. Look, we, we uh, consider going to India at the time. This is now seven or eight years ago. It seemed like there was so much capital flowing in from Silicon Valley. Well, it flew in and, and, and for the most part flew out, which is interesting. I think they people felt who needed quicker returns that the infrastructure issues, that they're just, it was, it was very difficult to get your money in or out. I, 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 re- I think that India, it's a no-brainer. I mean, there are so many engineers. There are so many well-trained people. There are so many. I think that what they've had to do, talking to people, is move from a kind of back-end service mentality, right, where a lot of people were doing things that were 
um, outsourcing and kind of back end to how do you move to that upper level of innovation, right? And and I think that again the talent is there, so it's just a question of of examples. But um, and and China. I think as well you have, I know Jack Ma, you know, when you have, you now have stories, you have now five or six uh, examples, and you have local venture capital going in. So I think it's, that's only going to, um, you know, compound itself in a good way. I think having said that, interestingly enough, um, I have found that innovation, you know, I, we talk about B2B and B2C, I always talk about E2E, emerging market to emerging market. And innovations that happen in countries like Brazil or, uh, you know, or Lebanon or Chile, you mentioned, or Kenya or Vietnam can actually expand to other emerging markets because a lot of the infrastructure challenges are similar. A lot of the obstacles are, are quite similar. Weirdly enough, I find the countries that have larger populations, so Saudi Arabia, uh, China, um, I, I don't have experiences in China as much, but Brazil, people tend to um, focus on their local country because the population is so big, which is an advantage. But in terms of scaling regionally or internationally, it's actually a disadvantage. What do I mean? If you're a Chilean company, if you're a Lebanese company, you have to look regionally from day one. So they think really agilely. They think not just how do I you know, get through the regulation on, in my own country. That's too small a market. But I do wonder in terms of um, there have been, you know, Alibaba clearly has gone global. There have been Baidu. But I do wonder to what extent huge populations are a help but also a hindrance in terms of making things that have, you know, equal relevance, um, you know, in, in other parts of the world. So I think we've seen a few examples. I think it will be fascinating to see what comes, what comes next. Um, but, you know, that's. Uh, we're in, I believe, for a continued period of global change, and I think that right now many of the uh, innovations have started in places like Silicon Valley and then been replicated, the so-called copycats. I think that's going to start to change. I do believe that we're going to start to see uh, round one innovations happening abroad and then the copycats happening in the so-called developed markets. I think we're going to start to see that more and more. Yeah, that's very interesting because I was going to ask you a sort of a final thought about our own ecosystem, domestic ecosystem, which has billions and billions of available capital. But you've talked about this before. One, um, some of that less sensitive to the disruptive effect on jobs and employment, and we're, we're yeah. reaping the results of that. Totally. Do you see any change in that world? Meaning, No. It... <laughs> <laughs> and what would it take for there to be change in that world? I mean, traditional banks are beginning to feel all sorts of pressures from fintech startups, not as much, I think, as has been heralded, but still some pressure. What would it take to change that sort of ecosystem of, of venture capital and private capital and liquidity events and all of it looking for the kind of the easier pathways, consumer apps, help me buy something, help me. I mean, what would that even entail, do you think? Look, I don't think it's 
Silicon Valley is going to change, and nor probably should it. It's great for what it does, and it's always future-oriented. It's very optimistic. It's very self-confident. They believe now they, that, that death is going to be an option, right, <laughs> and that AI is a positive thing. For many of us, AI is terrifying, but for them, AI is a uniquely positive thing, and all full force forward, let's all have chips in our brain, and let's all you know, outsmart, uh, outsmart death and outsmart anything that's in our way. I think for the rest of us, that's a little bit terrifying. And so they're not going to change. Um, but what is changing is, and I, you know, is that people are moving back to their home cities. And I think that when really successful entrepreneurs reinvest in their communities and become the angel investors and become then the growth capital providers and become the mentors, um, that's, that's what changes cities. And um, that and it's back to look. You, you mentioned Milan. What 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 did work in Milan? But the fashion homes, right? And 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 one apprenticed with another, and then they grew, right? And sometimes they'd compete, but sometimes they'd be frenemies, and they'd collaborate. And I think that that's again what we have to figure out, and what will happen. I'm certain in these secondary cities in the United States, and that people there are going to care about job creation in their communities. I think they will be more locally sensitive to, um, you know, to, to unmet needs or to, to unsolved problems and hopefully can do so in big, scalable ways. And I think that uh, probably there are some more similarities, again, uh, among these secondary cities. So what problems can be solved? I, I, I believe in entrepreneurs. I am fundamentally someone to your podcast that believes in what can go right. Um, I believe that entrepreneurs have a deep-seated passion, not just for making money, um, but for building things and for solving problems. And so what's super exciting to me is when you can take them out of, a, out of just one place or two pockets in the world where it's possible to you know, have the magic of, and have the, um, have the access to talent as well as to money, and you can give them access to those you know, materials building blocks they need, but put their attention on problems that are more day-to-day, that, that to me is where the exciting change is and will happen. In the, in the 1950s in the United States, those sorts of sentiments would have been ubiquitous, but they also were tethered to a kind of, you know, we're special and we're incredible. But it was much more common to hear, we can solve these problems, we can address these challenges. And in many ways, I've thought for years that that, for all of its defaults and ability to gloss over real problems, right, because it, there can be a self-satisfaction to that, that belief is an absolutely necessary fuel to go out and start a company or to address a problem. And, you know, we kind of need that fuel. Otherwise, why even bother? You need that belief and you need that conviction. And then you need evidence of it. You talked about the, the effect of example in these other countries. You need a few good examples. But you also, I think that too much capital can be a problem to, and, and can be a deterrent to that thinking. And I think that is the downside of Silicon Valley, is when people reverse engineer what the venture capitalists will pay for, right? And that's when you get dangerous. That's when you get, oh, the latest, you know, the Uber of X and the Airbnb of Y, right? And it's like pitching a movie in a town, right, where people are only looking for the thing they missed last time. Uh, venture capitalists hate when they miss something, and so if you can convince yourself that you're, you know, going to be even better than the thing they miss, then they'll fund you. It's like driving Miss Daisy and the Transformers together. I've got this. <laughs> exactly, right. exactly, right. So, so I think that 
one of the interesting things also is I was just, again, it just came from Atlanta, and uh, there's a guy, David Cummings, he started this uh, company called Pardo. He bootstrapped it, eventually sold it to Salesforce, took the proceeds and has created the Atlantic Tech Village, uh, the Atlantic Tech Village, and it's, it's really one of the, these incredible um, you know, incubators and places where people can, can have a community to work as well, and he's an incredible mentor and investor, but he believes in bootstrapping, right? And so ironically, again, sometimes what uh, you know, is missing Get, get, gets you back to the root of what you were talking about, which is this belief that, yeah, I want to create something really massive and really big, but I'm going to do it. It's going to be challenging, and I'm going to bootstrap, and I'm going to solve problems rather than just thinking about what, what's going to get me the Series B now that I have the Series A. And so being in a place of scarcity can actually unleash a lot of creativity. Hmm. That's a really interesting point, you know, the kind of the, the tyranny of too much capital and <laughs> yeah. what that can cause. And because then people, then people go in for the wrong motives. Look, if people are going to be entrepreneurs just because they think they're going to get rich quick, that is just never a good uh, likely outcome. Uh, being an entrepreneur is hard, as we know. Entrepreneur is the story often of, you know, what doesn't go right. And so you have to I always say have the stomach for the entrepreneur. And so if people... Uh, wake up every day and they feel like they can't not be an entrepreneur, that, that's going to get them through the tough times. Well, you've certainly had amazing experience. You've created this incredible global and I guess now domestic, which includes global, network of how to affect these kind of changes, how to build companies, how to inspire people. And uh, it's been really cool to watch you do this over the past decade plus, And it will be really cool to watch you do this for the next however long period that is. Thank you so much for your thoughts today, Linda. Thank you, Zachary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.